Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. This time with Sean Stevenson. Now it's funny that I have this man, Sean Stevenson, on our podcast because when I was first creating this Mind Valley podcast. I was advised to listen to Sean's podcast, The Model Health Show, as an example of what a truly great podcast should be. So, all of you fans out there, Mind Valley fans, if you're not subscribed to The Model Health Show podcast, check it out. It is a work of art. Sean, welcome to The Mind Valley podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That was incredible. I had no idea. That's so awesome. You know, Sean, there's so many incredible things about you. I am two thirds through your book, Sleep Smarter. Why I wanted to have you on the show? Not only are you a person I look up to in the field of podcasting because of your charm, the way you connect so many great ideas together, but your shows are genuinely fascinating. So, those of you listening, here's a tip. After this, the next podcast I want you to listen to is the Model Health Show. Listen to the episode on cola. What is that episode called? So it's a masterclass on soda. Right. It's yes. a history of the soda industry, and you learn about all the lies and how soda evolved to be what it is. And you're so respectful when you talk about these evil companies. Well, I shouldn't say evil, but these <laughs> companies which are pushing sugar as a fuel for happiness. But it's masterfully done. You genuinely learn a ton from it. So check that out. Now, Sean, you have such an incredible history. Before we get started with the barrage of knowledge you have on optimizing pretty much every area of our health, I would love to just have you share your story because your story on how you became the remarkably, ridiculously healthy person that you are today, it came from some incredible problems and stress you had in your younger years. Let's hear that. Sure. Yeah. I started off with aspirations of you know, playing professional football, as a lot of people do coming from where I come from. And by the way, so football, we're talking about U.S. football here, just to be clear. And when I was, you know, in high school, 15, 16 years old, I ran a 4-5, 40-yard dash, which is like professional NFL times, you know, for a lot of players. And I was very young doing this. And so I had a lot of attention. Everybody just kind of had this vibe, like, Sean's going to do this, Sean's going to do that. But they had other plans. And it was actually, I was a two-sport athlete. I ran track as well. And at track practice, when I was, you know, again, just 15 years old, I was doing a 200 meter time trial, which is running half the track, all out sprint. And as I was coming off of the curve onto the straightaway, my hip broke. And I just thought maybe I pulled a muscle. I came up limping. And here's the thing about a hard headed male. I continued to come to practice for a couple of days. You know, it's like I'll walk it off. But eventually it's just like my coach was like, you need to go get checked out. And I did. I got a scan done. And the iliac crest, so there's like the tip of my hip bone had just broken off. So I got better. You know, when you're 15, 16 years old, you have the hormones of like a Greek god and you're going to get better. You got nature stacked in your favor. But nobody stopped to ask, how did a kid break his hip from running? That's something that's typically reserved for folks that, number one, are older. And number two, it tends to be related more often with women. And so that was a clear indication at the time that I didn't know that I had some hormone issues going on. So that's number one. And it wasn't until cut to about a dozen more injuries took place. My aspirations of playing college football, professional football were gone. And finally, when I was 20 years old, I get diagnosed with this 
really devastating illness. This was the label that was given to me, degenerative bone disease and degenerative spinal disease. And so the disc in between the vertebrae and my spine were just breaking down so much so that my physician at the time told me I had the spine of an 80 year old man when I was just 20, the 20 year old kid. When I'm asking him, I'm sitting there in the doctor's office. I'm like, okay, so how do we fix this? And he's like, whoa, whoa, slow down, son. This is something that's incurable. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have the spine of an 80 year old son and there's nothing that you can do about this. And you know about this stuff as well, Vision. This is why I'm so excited to talk to you. What he exposed me to was something called a nocebo effect. Many people have heard of the placebo effect. The gold standard of clinical trials, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, right? So we have to account for the fact that a placebo is going to work for some people. About 33% on average, placebos are effective in clinical trials. So whether it's a drug for cancer, for heart disease, for depression, 33% effective on average. That's the power of the human mind. By the way, it's a fake treatment, fake surgery, fake drug, fake cream, and somebody just believing that it works, their blood pressure goes down, their cancer begins to be destroyed, their depression goes away. And so that's a positive thing in many aspects. The opposite, however, is a nocebo effect. This is when you give someone a negative injunction that something bad is going to happen. You have two weeks to live. This is incurable. There's nothing you can do about this. You'll never walk again. We hear the stories of the people that do walk again, but that's in the minority. That's that 1% of people who don't accept that diagnosis. For me, I accepted it. And I'm sorry to say this. And it took me two years of struggle before I changed. How old were you when you got this horrible nocebo diagnosis? So I was 20 years old when this happened. And so over the course of the next two years, I gained about 40, 50 pounds of fat. And I was very docile because my physicians and other physicians I would see would be like, don't do anything, be careful. Bed rest. They would literally give me permission to not do anything. And the worst thing you can do is to do nothing, you know, because not only is my spine and bones degenerating, now everything else is going to atrophy because your body very much works on the use it or lose it model, whether it's your muscle or your brain. Right. And so I gained all this weight. It was very docile. Spoiler alert. It's a good ending to the story. It took two years before I really got this. I was sitting on the edge of my bed. I had my pill bottle in my hand and I had to drug myself just to sleep at night because the pain would wake me up. And I was experiencing this very terrible sciatic nerve pain shooting down my leg like it was crazy. And so I was sitting there and I realized that I had been passing my health off onto my physicians to take care of me, you know, and even though they meant well, they don't walk in my shoes. And they were literally telling me that there's nothing I can do about this. Why in the hell would I believe them? Unless I want to live this life for the rest of my life, I had to do something different. And so in that moment, I actually decided to get well. And most people never do that vision. Whether it's in their business, in their relationships, in their health, it's more like wishful thinking, like, I'll give this a try. We'll see what happens. I wish this would work, right? But when you decide something, nothing can stop you. This is from the Latin day, meaning from, and kaidir, which means to cut. So when you actually decide, you cut away the possibility of anything else but that thing. And so I decided to get well. No matter what happens, I'm going to get better. And so that was kind of the catalyst, that moment, just to be clear, it's not like, you know, the clouds parted and a leprechaun popped out or whatever. It's just like, you finally decided. It was more like now is execution time. And this is one of the things about me that I would attribute to a character trait that folks could kind of develop is speed of implementation and execution. Not just talking about it. I actually put a plan together and begin to execute the plan. And long story short, over the next six weeks, I lost about 20 pounds, which results not typical. 
And the pain I've been experiencing for the past two and a half years that had me in fear of even standing up was gone. Nine months later, I got a scan done. I regenerated the tissue in my intervertebral disc. So I had regained that juiciness, that suppleness in my disc that had gone away that was so-called impossible to heal. And that was the birthing of my career as well, because people began to ask, like, what did you do? I didn't just look like a person who lost weight, by the way. I didn't go from like an apple shape to a smaller apple. I changed my body composition. And I just looked like a person who was radiantly healthy. And people at my university were coming up to me. My professors were coming to me. And they became some of my first clients and eventually opened my clinical practice, writing books, speaking all over the world. And here I am today with you. This is amazing. And this explains how your mission became to help everyone become the strongest, healthiest, happiest version of yourself. Now, what was it that you did? Because I bet many people listening would want to figure out what was that mindset that pulled you out of that slump? You know, working with thousands of people in a one-on-one context, there always has to be a why. And I didn't know this at the time, but I had these pieces that I could draw from as my why. So I had a young son who was just born and I had my grandmother. And these were two whys that were just festering because my grandmother, ever since I was a child, I lived with her until I was in second grade. And it was a very peaceful place. There was a lot of certainty there. There was a lot of love. I never saw her and my grandfather argue. You know, they were an entity. And not that they didn't, you know, but they were an entity. There was so much love there. And she instilled in me this sense of like, I'm going to do something special. Like, she would always say that, that you are beautiful, you're special, you're a special little boy. And, you know, she got me into writing. You know, I remember having my little Garfield notebook and just started writing when I was very young and I fell in love with that. And I remember during this process, at some point, you know, your parents and grandparents, they're not cool anymore. And she kept calling me to see how I'm doing. I wasn't doing okay, but I was like, I'm fine, grandma. And it really hit me that the person she had seen me to be and instilled in me to be, I was not that person. I was far from it. And it's because I was accepting this life that other people had said was possible for me. And so I used that, that was a catalyst moment. And also my son, I wanted to be able to be a good example for him, to be a good man, to show him what it really looks like to be a good man, because I didn't really have that in my life growing up. And so those two things, my why became bigger than my problem. Wow, that's a great, phenomenal quote. Your why became bigger than your problem. And look where it's gotten you today. I mean, no joke, man. You have one of the biggest podcasts in terms of audiences. I think for a while you were the biggest podcast in the world. Am I right? Yeah, we were up to like the top 20, you know, which is crazy because it's half a million podcasts. So, Sean, there are a couple of things, like I said. Now, for those of you who are interested in Sean's work, get his book, Sleep Smarter. Now, you know, one thing, Sean, I did not like about your book is it sounds like it's about a sleep book because of the title, but you really go into so many things from caffeine to magnesium to training to text days out of the bedroom to booze to sleeping positions to supplements you actually cover a wide array of different things i learned so much from the book but it was one of those books that over delivered and you know to me the mark of a good book is the highlights i use apple ibooks and i highlight things prolifically and the amount of highlights per page on this book was insane but there's one thing i really want to bring up because I love what you say here. So I'm holding up the book right here, page 54 of 574. You say, in our culture, sleep is not respected much at all. In fact, we're often programmed with the idea that to be successful, we need to work harder. We need to sleep less and we can catch up on all the sleep we want when we're dead. To say sleep is not respected, 
is really an understatement. Let's talk about that because this work hard versus work and flow has been a big debate here in Mind Valley. So I'd love to know your views on this. Why is sleep so important? And what's up with this thing about sleep not being respected? Yeah, absolutely. So, and by the way, you probably know some of these guys too. I know some of the most hard charging entrepreneurs in the world, you know, be it Gary Vaynerchuk or Eric Thomas, who's the number one motivational speaker in the world. He's a really close friend of mine. And having conversations with both of these guys, they're getting their sleep. All right. Especially now, with Gary V, he's really more playing the long game. Our last conversation, he had hired a trainer to travel with him, to really be on top of him with his food and his exercise, because again, he's playing the long game. There is a season where we can, quote, get away with it, right? And so it tends to be when we're younger, but now if you pull that crap, like it takes like three days to recover from an all-nighter, you know? What we don't understand is that we're actually accelerating our aging process. And so speaking with, you know, Alyssa Apple and, you know, her co-author, by the way, she won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of telomeres. And so these are the greatest biological markers that we have telling us how long we're going to live. And probably the number one thing that can shorten your telomeres, your biological possibility, your chronological, you know, depending on these going to be different, is sleep deprivation. If you want to get old fast, deprive yourself of sleep. And so a lot of people are kind of burning that candle. They're burning that telomere and shortening very, very quickly because of our societal conditioning. So we were led to believe that you have to do something to be successful. And this is absolutely true. Hard work is involved, but there is a time when you need to recuperate from that. And so, for example, exercise. Everybody knows exercise is good for you, but it's a stress. It's known as a hormetic stressor. And so if you're exercising, but you put that on top of your emotional stress, your work stress, your relationship stress, your environmental stress, food stress, and it contributes to something I call your overall stress load. Then you add your training for a marathon on top of that. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to break down severely. And again, I know the people that have done that. And what we need to do is understand that exercise is wonderful, but it's the recovery that really changes everything. And to give a good example, Vision, if you and I were to go and train together, you know, it's us and all the listeners, like we get together, we do a big group session. When we're standing there looking at the equipment before we touch a single thing, we're in better shape than after we work out. All right, let's say that again. We're in better shape before the workout than after the workout. And facts, if I take all of us and go get a blood panel done, a hormone panel done, cortisol is going to be elevated, blood sugar is going to be wonky, you know, we're going to have issues with leptin, we're going to have issues with epinephrine and norepinephrine, and we can possibly get all of us diagnosed with the disease, all right, some kind of condition, get some kind of medication. But all we did was just have a good workout. The change happens while we're sleeping. This is when you produce reparative enzymes, anabolic hormones, the things that really help to bring us back better. And so with all that said, especially with the mindset that we have to do something in order to get something, what's going to tend to happen is we're not going to understand that by doing nothing, we're going to get the biggest reward of all. Because when you're sleeping, you're literally doing nothing. But what's the most difficult thing to do today, if you're really honest with yourself, is to do nothing. And so this isn't something that's just free. This is something that you proactively have to decide and structure your life in order to get. It's harder than almost anything, if we're going to be honest about it. So the thing that we have to get past is understanding that if we take rest, if we give ourselves permission to recover from all the incredible things we're doing, that we're going to come back better, that's where we're really going to be empowered. Right. And the people who say, look, I'm going to sleep when I'm dead. Well, 
sleep will actually add more years to your life. So it's not exactly like you are wasting time there. Exactly. Exactly. I love what you wrote in your book because you talk about this. When you leave the gym, I'm reading from your book, you're actually in worse shape than when you came in. And you said the secret is that your body is transformed from your workout while you sleep. This was another one of the, I guess, two gajillion highlights I made in your book. One thing that I want to make sure that it's clear, sleep is just a weird ass thing, period. You know, if you really think about it, we're very vulnerable in this state. We are unconscious. And so you would think that with evolution and survival, we would have evolved out of it at some point. But the reason we haven't is that it's so hypervaluable in our function of our brain, of our muscle tissue, of our hormones. So many things are happening. But here's the thing. What the hell is sleep? We got to start the conversation with that. And when somebody's doing a sleep test, for example, how do we know somebody is sleeping? What is it? What sleep is, plain and simple, is a change in your brain waves that we're able to monitor. And so right now in our normal waking state, we're in beta. But as we transition into sleep, we go into alpha, then theta, and then eventually deep delta wave sleep. Now, really advanced meditators can get there as well. But generally, this is the only time people touch that place. And when we touch that place of delta sleep, slow wave sleep, this is when you produce the vast majority of human growth hormone, for example. And this is also known as the, quote, youth hormone. Kids have a, it's insane, like a thousand percent more HGH production than the average adult. And this is why kids have so much energy. It's just like, you know, I can see people's conversations like, oh, I wish I can have that energy that kid has. Like, can I borrow some of that? Well, guess what? The only time you get access to that is during sleep. And we can touch it, you know, as far as like doing anabolic strength training, you know, deadlifts, things like that. But it pales in comparison to the amount that you get secreted during deep delta wave sleep. So what I want people to understand is that each of those stages is valuable. And what great sleep really is, is spending an optimal amount of time in each of those stages and getting all those benefits. So REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, is another phase. During REM sleep, memory processing takes place, a vast majority of memory processing. This is where your experiences from right now get converted into your short-term memory, right? And so just to give people an example of what that looks like, many of us has probably had an experience where you drink too much and you don't really remember what happened. All right. But maybe, you know, somebody who has. And so what happens is drinking alcohol close to bedtime creates something called a REM rebound effect where your REM sleep is suppressed. And so even though you're unconscious for maybe eight, 10 hours, if you're not getting REM sleep, you're not going to remember what happened prior to you going to sleep. So REM sleep is valuable for memory processing and some other things. Delta wave sleep is important for anabolic production of hormones and some other things. And so we need to spend enough time in all four, and there's also five, depending on which experts you talk to, of these stages in order to get really great sleep. And this is a common misconception. Like two years back, when I was not the health nut that I am today, I would drink a glass of wine at night, every night in front of Netflix to chill, to relax. And I believe that that would actually help me sleep better. Now I know, of course, that alcohol, while it can get you tired, it does not help you sleep better. What's going on there? So this is such a great question because we really need to understand this. Alcohol does, in fact, help us to fall asleep faster, for sure. But the problem is that it interrupts our REM sleep. And again, so it creates this REM rebound effect. And so it's not to say that that experience of drinking wine doesn't help us to wind down and to relax and to fall asleep. It absolutely does. But what happens is, quote, hangover, and it can be different for different people. Maybe it's just waking up feeling tired. 
Maybe it's, you know, having struggles with headaches or nausea or things like that. What the hangover really is, it's not the fact that you just drank the alcohol. It's the effect that it has on your sleep quality. This is when your body is really recovering and processing, you know, your liver's doing all of these jobs. Let me be clear. It's understanding we need to put these things in context. And maybe we don't want to get hammered right close to bedtime. Matter of fact, I mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk. When we last saw each other, it was a wine tasting. And so I'm going to have some, especially with him. But here's a little couple little tips we just throw out there. If you can, give yourself two hours. You know, so if you plan on getting to bed at midnight, you know, maybe you're out hanging out, finish your last drink by 10. Give your body a couple of hours to process that alcohol. There's a saying that nature's solution to pollution is dilution. And so drinking water, that can help to dilute the alcohol effects. And you're going to piss a lot initially, but it's going to really help flush that out of your system. You can get your experience, you know, your head change, feel good, hang out. But let's make sure you get good sleep so you can have that fun and then also feel good the next day. Okay, so we busted the alcohol myth. Now, what about Ambien? Elon Musk, who's probably the most respected entrepreneurial legend on the planet today, just confessed two months back in a New York Times interview that he can't get to sleep without Ambien. What's your view on this sleeping pill? Yeah, I've worked with, again, many patients over the years, high-performing entrepreneurs who that was their thing, you know, is Ambien. This is prior to me even writing the book. What we have to understand, and this is something very simple. First of all, we don't really know how it works when folks are going in and getting anesthesia. We don't exactly know how it works. We just know that you're no longer there. You're not conscious. And there's a difference between getting high quality sleep that I mentioned where we're cycling through those four stages efficiently and pseudo sleep where we're just knocked out and unconscious. And here's the thing. I did it as well. I had my prescription medication and over the counter. I was taking both together, my little cocktail, to knock my ass out because I would wake up repeatedly through the night because of my pain. It was like trying to peel myself off of the mattress in the morning. It was so difficult getting up. And it would take several hours before I was really feeling like myself. And so what's happening is Elon, he's creating this experience of pseudo sleep. He's not truly getting recovered. It's impossible because you're forcing your body into the state of unconsciousness. It's not dictating whether or not you're going into your sleep cycles. And so I've really been working to help to educate us that before we get to Ambien, let's try some things beforehand, even on the supplement side. There are things that have some clinical backing that can support your body's production of sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters. What do you recommend? So we can start with something simple. Everybody's heard of chamomile, for example, simple chamomile tea. We've got just decades of documentation that it helps everything from relaxing the muscles and nervous system improving the function of your cardiovascular system, but also relaxing folks and helping them to sleep better. We've got kava kava, legendary, all right? Like thousands of years of documented use as a mild sedative. We got valerian, that's another one. These are progressively stronger. But let's talk about, on the synthetic side, you know, things like L-tryptophan and or 5-HTP. Let me just make this clear too. Melatonin supplementation, it has a place. But now we know, and I think you know Michael Bruce as well, He's called America's Sleep Doctor, and he's one of the biggest supporters of Sleep Smarter because I've made this so practical and accessible for folks. But he's talked about the problem with melatonin many times. What your body does and what many experts say is taking supplemental melatonin can potentially stop your body from producing melatonin. Now, that's not true, and I dug to try to find this in the research. What has been found, however, is that consistently taking melatonin, especially higher doses, will downregulate the receptor sites for melatonin. So that means you'll still produce melatonin, but your body won't be able to use it. 
right? And so you have to take more and more and more and more, and you get to that place of addiction. But the same thing doesn't happen with 5-HTP. So this is a building block, right? So we're giving our body the beginning steps of creating melatonin itself, right? So 5-HTP, tryptophan, serotonin, these are all precursors to creating melatonin. Your body can take serotonin and make melatonin. And so what we want to do is how do we find areas with food, potentially supplementation, but also a lifestyle that can produce the precursors to melatonin. One of those is simply getting access to sunlight. Innovations in clinical neuroscience did a fascinating study and found that sun exposure can, number one, reduce your production of cortisol in the evening, which is amazing because cortisol is an antagonist. It's kind of like the Joker to melatonin's Batman, right? And so if cortisol is elevated, melatonin is going to be suppressed. Right? So it helps to lower cortisol in the evening, which is just fascinating. And what that does is help to reset what we call your cortisol rhythm. Another thing exposure does is it increases your production of serotonin. It's like the opening act. It's like step one for your sleep at night. And this is something we would naturally normally be doing as humans through our evolution. We get exposure to sunlight. When it gets dark outside, we take our ass to sleep. And this you know, is why we sometimes feel more down in the winter because there's less sunlight. Exactly. And that's going to reduce your production of serotonin. Right. So let's go back for a second. Sleeping pills. 40 million Americans are hooked on sleeping pills. Ambien being just one of the two most common kinds. Now, Michael Bruce has said, I quote, Ambien can be harder to get off than heroin. What would you recommend to someone who's looking to get off Ambien? Because like you said, while it knocks you out, your sleep isn't going to be as healthy as natural sleep. Yeah, yeah. It's going to take an overall lifestyle approach. It's going to have to take a priority in people's lives because it is very addictive and you just biochemically become attached to it as well. This is what Sleep Smart is really about, is stacking conditions in people's favor so that good sleep is automatic. Let's say there's someone listening to this podcast who is looking to get off sleep medication. What would you advise that they do? Surely reading your book, Sleep Smarter, is going to help. But, you know, what would be some of the steps they could take? You have to fix your gut to fix your sleep. So where is the first place that your body's going to interact with that medication is going to be your gut, your gastrointestinal tract and the bacteria there. And also it's going to involve your liver. Your liver is responsible for drug metabolism. And so we have to address these organs and help them to be sufficient and healthy on their own. And so why do I say fix your gut to fix your sleep? First of all, melatonin isn't a sleep hormone. It's glorified as a sleep hormone. It's really responsible for helping to regulate your circadian rhythms. I liken melatonin to like a manual transmission. It's helping you to go through those sleep stages efficiently and also setting you up for a good day. And so we want to do what we can in order to produce sufficient melatonin if we want to get off this drug. So how do we do that? Number one, when I went to school, traditional university, I was taught that melatonin is produced in your pineal gland. End of story, right? Pineal gland, melatonin. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. What we found now is that there's 400 times more melatonin in your gut than in your brain. And if you, which I don't recommend doing this, but you had your pineal gland removed, those levels of melatonin still stay relatively the same in your gastrointestinal tract. And so this is known as your enteric nervous system. So, so much in the conversation about sleep is related to your gut health. On top of that, we also have serotonin. We have over 80% of your body's serotonin is located in your gut as well. Again, the precursor to producing melatonin. Here's the problem with the average person. Their gastrointestinal tract is madly off, right? They're experiencing dysbiosis with that gut bacteria. 
And so researchers at Caltech found that there are specific bacteria in your gut that communicate with the cells that produce sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters. And so if your good bacteria is skewed or it's off because of your lifestyle, you're not going to be producing these things, number one. Number two, if there are these, quote, bad bacteria, right, these pathogenic opportunistic bacteria that are running your ship, which there's one study I cited that just simply changing time zones, you know, it's like a 12-hour flight. They took some poop samples from passengers and they monitored their fecal samples after this change. And what they found was that there was an increase in pathogenic bacteria that's associated with diabetes and obesity just after that multiple shift in time zones. Now, here's the good news, by the way. As soon as they got back on track with their normal sleep schedule, everything went back to normal. So sleep influences the gut bacteria in profound ways. Exactly. I mean, it's one of the most powerful influences. You know, there's a lot of work out there talking about fixing your gut, you know, improving gut health. And for people who are listening, just so you don't underestimate the impact of gut bacteria, consider this roughly 3% of your body weight is bacteria, is your biome. And you have more bacterial cells in your body than human cells. You are more bacteria than human, technically. And so we are actually not purely human. We live in symbiosis with these trillions of bacteria cells that occupy primarily a gut. And they influence your moods. They influence your health. So this is what Sean is talking about. How can we fix our gut bacteria to produce more melatonin so we can have better sleep? You know, so often people would come into my clinic looking for like, what can I take for this? What can I take for more energy? What can I take to lose weight, right? This kind of looking at me like an allopathic physician, like a pill for every ill kind of thing. The number one thing to do most often is to stop doing the things that's causing the problem, right? Remove the problem and then there's no longer a symptom to deal with. And so what are some of those things that are just destroying that cascade, what we call today our microbiome? Think of like a biome in nature, like a rainforest. For us as humans, some species are now extinct of these friendly flora, supportive bacteria. Some are now endangered and some are thriving. But we want to make sure that taking care of these good bacteria. So here's how we do it. Number one, remove the cause that's destroying it. Let me give you a few of those. Our current food supply, period, you know, processed foods, sugar feeds opportunistic bacteria. It helps them to get in charge of your vessel. So just cutting back on processed sugar, we all know this, you know, but what about your drinking water? Here in the United States, we use chlorinated water. You know, there's chlorine treatment, which is good because we don't want to drink water that is littered with all of these different pathogens. I would prefer that than to drink, you know, dangerous, dirty water. But chlorine is a very strong antibiotic. It doesn't care what Jersey, you know, if it's a good bacteria or bad bacteria, it kills bacteria, it's its job. There are better ways we can go about that in our current system, which I'm not gonna get into, but what folks can do is they can get a reverse osmosis system or they can purchase spring water and avoid the chlorinated water as best as you can. You start your day with 28 to 32 ounces of cleaned structured water. What is clean structured water? Yeah, so there's a quote from Leonardo da Vinci that water is the driver of all of nature. This is one of the people that we attribute to like being this quote, Renaissance man, right? So gifted in all these different areas. What the hell is he talking about water like that for? So sexy with the water. And it's because it's such a powerful entity. When I'm looking at Vision and he sees me, you're seeing water. That is the biggest constituent of our makeup is the water that we're drinking. The human body is somewhere around 70% water as you get older. But it's water that's changed and become other things. Water is known as a universal solvent. And so whatever it is around, it becomes, it integrates with, right? And so 
Water is responsible for your neurotransmitters moving throughout your body on the superhighway in your system. Your blood is the biggest constitution of your blood. Your cerebral spinal fluid. Your brain is mostly water and fat, but mostly water. And so just talking about this, even a deficiency, if we go 5% less than your optimal hydration level for your body, you can damage your DNA from that. All right. Water is that important. And so when I'm talking about intelligence of water, when I say structured, water is sort of like a liquid crystal. And we can see that when we freeze it, you know, it has a structure, but it's very intelligent in how it can flow and change with, you know, exposure to the environment. And so structured water, that just means minerals. Minerals give the water structure. And one of the things that can be pulled out from your water and take away the structure is, crazy enough, reverse osmosis. It creates H2O. And H2O does not exist anywhere in nature. That's a supplement, right? That's a drug. In nature, what you find is H2O with other things dissolved into it. Truly pure water, H2O plus minerals. So you take that reverse osmosis, you add a little bit of sea salt, or you add a little bit of lemon. It's one of the things that we see kind of common, lemon or lime. It's adding electrons to the water. It's giving it structure. And it makes it more hydrating because when the water is structured, it better fits into these protein channels. They're called aquaporins that allow the water to get into the cells to do their job. And if it's not structured properly, for example, some folks feel that when they're drinking distilled water, for example, they never really feel hydrated. The water's just kind of running right through them. And so making sure that the water's structured by you know doing some of the things I just mentioned. And the reason I do this first thing in the morning, I've been doing this for, I don't know, probably 15 years now. I call this my inner bath. Most folks take an outer bath or outer shower each day, hopefully, but isn't the inside more important? And when you wake up in the morning, this is one of the most dehydrated states you're in. For a lot of folks, it's going seven or eight hours without water. And you think, okay, well, I'm not active. Your body is doing a shitload of processes while you're sleeping to bring you back better. Detoxification of your brain. This is when we have an uptick in the function of your glymphatic system, 10 times more active in removing waste products from your brain during sleep. The rest of your cells, all these metabolic wastes from processing burning fat, some folks notice that they sweat even when they're sleeping because of this thermoregulation. And when you wake up, you go pee, what happens? It's very concentrated urine, so it's gonna be a deeper yellow for a lot of folks. And so that's an indication that you know your hydration level is low. So drinking that water helps to displace and to flush out metabolic waste. And here's something else, Vision, I don't talk about this often. There's also something called water-induced thermogenesis. There's multiple studies that have found this. By drinking water, you get an uptick in your metabolism. You're gonna burn about 30 additional calories simply from drinking, and what was done in the studies, about 17 ounces of water at one time. And by the way, it was from the oxidation of fat. You burn fat drinking water. I read that if you're dehydrated, your metabolic rate's gonna shrink by about three to 4%. Yes, exactly. There's one more aspect about sleep which I find fascinating. In Tom Ratt's book, Eat, Move, Sleep, he speaks about how if you don't get enough sleep, your immunity is going to drop by about 500%. And I've noticed that, right? I've noticed that several days of lack of sleep can really, at my age, mid-40s, fuck up my immunity. And that's one of the other big advantages of sleep. When you sleep more, you're less likely to get sick. Thank you for bringing that up. What we see consistently is folks, when, you know, when they're traveling, even vacation, folks tend to get sick more often because they're getting off of that routine and that schedule. And when we were talking earlier about what's going on in the gut, guess what? About 80% plus of your immune system is located in your gut as well. And so just keeping all this in context, I mentioned a couple of things that can throw that microbiome off, but also today, another big issue is this haphazard use of antibiotics. And I know when I was a kid, like my mom would just give me some of her antibiotics when I was sick. 
It might have been a viral thing that this doesn't even help. There's a placebo effect of taking a drug or going to see your physician, but this is destroying our microbiome and it's developing today. Now we have these, quote, superbugs that are antibiotic resistant because of our haphazard use of that and also in our food supply. Because it's not just you are what you eat, it's you are what you eat ate. And so the animals that are raised on conventional factory farms, they're giving automatically, you know, whether it's farm-raised salmon or pork or whatever it is, antibiotics in the feed. And so you're consuming those tissues, you're consuming the related hormones, antibiotics, all of those things. So removing those things and then supporting the gut by making sure we're getting in some kind of probiotic foods. Working at a university, I had the opportunity to talk to people from all over the world, every culture, everyone has some form of fermented food or drink in their culture because of all the health-giving, immunosupportive aspects of that. So you're recommending fermented food, but what about probiotics? Because I've heard that some studies show that they don't actually work. Yeah, that's why I didn't say it. The jury is still out. But I do know from clinical practice, from clinical experience, we do see a change in that microbiome when folks are taking. But here's the thing. It has to be right for the person because some probiotics are not going to set or take up the place in certain people's digestive system. It might be the ratio is off. It might be it's just not supportive of that type of bacteria because we're all so unique. And so if they can get some adequate testing done, they can pinpoint like I need more of this type of probiotic than this type. So I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. And you know, there's a great company by a friend of mine, Naveen Jain. The company is called Viome, V-I-O-M-E. And Viome actually ships you a test kit that does a genetic reading on your gut bacteria, and then prescribes a diet for you based on the genetic reading of your gut bacteria. I'm probably not explaining it as well as Naveen would, but check it out, Viome, V-I-O-M-E.com. They are massive right now, and their goal is to take on the entire pharmaceutical industry and make customized help accessible for everyone in the U.S. So there are a couple of other things you said which I found interesting. In addition to gut bacteria and everything else, you also say in your book, so again, I don't want to spill the beans on what's inside the book, but check out Sleep Smarter, genuinely a great book. But a couple of other things, stop drinking coffee after 2 p.m. I fudged that a little. I love my coffee, so I tend to stop drinking coffee after 3. But that was a really, really good rule. I learned from you the 6 to 8 hour half-life of coffee. So if you drink a cup of coffee at 6 p.m., at midnight, when it's time to go to bed, if that's your bedtime, half of that caffeine is still in your bloodstream. And then you mention magnesium as a sleep supplement. You mention orgasms. You said your bed is for two things, sleep and sex. You mentioned blackout. And you talk about how it's important for your room to be pitch dark. You share one study, which I found fascinating, from the University of Pennsylvania, where kids who slept in rooms with nightlights were more probable to develop short-sightedness than kids who sleep in a pure dark room. So today, my kids sleep in a pure dark room. You mentioned the myth about booze, and you mentioned bedwear, grounding, nighttime rituals, supplements, calm before bed. And one of the other cool things is tech stays out of the bedroom, and you mentioned how we need to use those geeky yellow glasses that Dave Asprey wears in all his pictures. <laughs> yeah. So the best way to go about this is to give yourself a little bit of a screen curfew. Now, everybody listening probably by now, because of all the marketing behind this, knows about the issues we're having with our tech in relationship to our sleep. I've been talking about this for like six or seven years, you know, so some of this stuff might have come from me, but I want to give you the real reason why, what's going on. So Harvard researchers have confirmed that being on our devices at night specifically, it doesn't have an impact during the day, 
suppresses melatonin. And what the numbers are, and I'm just giving you a general look at these. So every hour you're on your device at night suppresses melatonin for 30 minutes. So if you're on your device at night for three hours, even though you might be physically exhausted and you pass out, you're unconscious, you're not producing melatonin to, again, go through your sleep cycles properly for about 90 minutes after that. Not saying that you're not producing any, but it's not at the place that it needs to be. And so that's number one, melatonin is suppressed. Number two, cortisol is elevated. And so being on your device at night, one of the first things we see, because it's telling your brain it's daytime, it's throwing you off, this circadian rhythm. And especially these blue and white light spectrum. And so for many of us might be like, you know, we're on your device. We don't really see blue and white light. We see all these array of beautiful colors. But if the lights are out and you walk in, you see somebody that's sitting on their laptop or watching TV, you see this glow, this blue alien like they're getting abducted sheen coming off of them. And because that light spectrum is so strong and so similar to what we see with sunlight. So cortisol is elevated, which, again, suppresses melatonin. And we know, in fact, melatonin suppressed. So what can we do? Number one, give yourself a little bit of a screen curfew. That's my very best advice. And I would say literally just 30 minutes. Just start with 30 minutes. Work your way from there. But for a lot of people, a lot of people listening, and all the events I speak at, and I ask people to be honest, like, let's get honest, because the first step in healing is admitting that we have a problem, right? And so most folks, the last thing they do is get off of their phone before they go to bed. Like last thing they do, they look at their phone, kiss it goodnight, and then they go to sleep. And by the way, so at least 30% of adults sleep with their phone in their bed with them. We're just getting a little too intimate, right? But here's the thing I want people to understand. That 30 minutes, it might sound even easy as you're hearing it right now. I could do that. No, you can't. No, you can't. Because we are addicted. And this is because... You know, if you look at the experience with social media, we've got thousands of engineers working minute after minute to find out how to keep you on their device, on the app, et cetera, every day. We've never experienced anything like this. And we get this little dopamine. A lot of people talk about dopamine being related to happiness. That's not exactly right. It's more related to drive. It's the search. It's the seeking. It drives us to look for things. And dopamine is important for human evolution because we wouldn't have wanted to you know, crawl out of the ocean or out of the cave or whatever if it wasn't for dopamine driving us to be more, to experience, to look for more. Now, here's the thing. If you don't find something, you'll go insane, just continuing to seek. You have to get some reward. And every time you find something, you get a little hit from that opioid system for your brain. It's like a little slow drip of morphine. And the internet is perfect for playing with that system, especially social media, because every time you seek, you find, look fine, look fine, dopamine, opioids, dopamine, opioids, and you become physiologically addicted and you get yourself into this place where we all do this. We have these just checks, right? We might be needing to get this blog post done or, you know, work on emails or, you know, work on the podcast, but we just check our phone, right? We just reach over, just check. We don't even know we're doing it, right? Because we are addicted. And so when you say 30 minutes, screen curfew, that's a big ass deal. Here's what you have to do. You have to replace this experience with the phone of something of greater or equal value. You can't just sit there and twiddle your thumbs. You're going to get the internet jitters, what I lovingly call the internet jitters. You're going to be tweaking. You're going to go through withdrawal. You're going to feel like, just check. Just let me just check one post. Just one. Instead, we have to replace that. And so what does that look like? It's going to be personal. This could be diving into a good book, listening to a fascinating podcast. This could be spending time with your kids and playing a board game. This could be having sex. Hopefully that's more entertaining than your phone, but it's not guaranteed. 
So books, podcasts, sex, meditation. Enjoying a glass of wine is out because we know that's going to mess up your sleep. So those are the four options. Podcasts, books, meditation, or sex. Spending time with another human, Vision, as crazy as it sounds, you know, to connect, that can be the most valuable thing. If we give it a try, talk to your significant other. Question. What about if we wear those blue blocker glasses, the type of the yellowish lens that block blue yeah. light from your devices? Does that make it safe? I wouldn't say safe. It helps. We've got a lot of anecdotal evidence, very small clinical data, and it depends on the type of glasses because some we're finding that they just don't do much at all. And so what does this look like? I've been using the glasses. I still do. And there's also this effect that begins to take place of when you put the glasses on, if it's part of your sleep ritual, I immediately start getting tired. Right. And so if the glasses are correct, what we're doing is we're blocking upwards of 99 percent of that blue light spectrum getting through. And you can see it sometimes like bouncing off of the lens itself. So that's a good hack to have in your back pocket or just to use in addition. Right. Because sometimes I'm going to stay up. I'm going to watch a movie with my wife or I might have to work late. I'm wearing those glasses for sure. And there are free apps as well. Apple is built in night shift on their phones, which does some of the same things, but that has not been found to be effective yet. There are apps like Twilight, you can get if you have an Android. On your desktops and laptops, there's Flux, that's F.L.U.X, it does the same job. You know, So you don't have to go and buy anything. These are all free things that can help, but there's no guarantee. There's nothing better than giving yourself a little curfew. Right, and Flux is extremely well recommended for computers. Ben Greenfield recommends Flux. I've been using Flux on my machine, and I've been using those blue light blocking glasses, which are really cheap. I have like seven of them just lying all over the house. So thank you, Sean. This was an awesome conversation with you. Again, guys, I want to recommend that you check out the Model Health Show podcast. Amazing, amazing, amazing podcast. And I want to recommend that you check out Sleep Smarter with Sean Stevenson. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vishen. Appreciate it. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.